Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. This is the Health, Medicine, and Bioscience Edition. My job here for the listeners is to find the geniuses in their fields, you know, the best of the best. I've spoken over <clears throat> 2,000 researchers, clinicians, scientists, et cetera, over the past three and a half years. Today, I have uh, Sydney Leibel. Um, Dr. Sydney Leibel is a board-certified pediatric allergist and immunologist at uh, Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. He's also an assistant professor of pediatrics at UC San Diego School of Medicine. So, uh, Sydney, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, tell me about uh, why why this focus, why pediatric uh, allergies and immunology. What what enticed you to go into that and specialize? Yeah, sure. I've um, I've always had an interest in uh, working with children. Uh, probably back in high school, I kind of figured I was going to work with kids as a as a pediatrician, or if that didn't work out, I was going to be a teacher. Um, so I always knew I was going to want to work with kids. Um, and then allergy immunology, I really just kind of when I was an undergrad at UC San Diego, became interested in the immune system and how we kind of defend ourselves against different foreign invaders. And then with allergy, how our body kind of overreacts to certain, certain things, how our immune system kind of overreacts to things. Um, and so kind of my, my, my love of sort of pediatric allergy kind of started back then. So what's the focus within allergies for you? Is it uh, food allergies? Is it seasonal, um, you know, uh, asthma, things like that, chronic conditions? Like where's your focus? Yeah, I, I think my, my interest kind of evolved over time, and I, I do focus now more on pediatric asthma. Um, when I was, uh, I ended up, um, I ended up um, going to, to medical school in Australia and sort of uh, started to see patients with asthma there um, and uh, under sort of a different medical system they have over there. So that, that was kind of my first exposure to pediatric uh, asthma patients, and then uh, as a, even in med school. And then I went to um, I went to uh, the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I worked in a clinic where we developed a um, asthma education program for for uh, for homeless uh, people. Actually, my clinic was working out of a homeless shelter, um, and so it's kind of evolved over 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 time. Um, I ended up uh, going doing my fellowship in St. Louis, um, and. Uh, uh, my wife and I both moved out there, and then after that, we ended up moving to Canada. Um, so I've kind of been all over the place. Uh, but in, in Canada, I got a master's in public health, learned about population health, and some strategies that could be used um, in different populations. And so um, finally, kind of came back to San Diego um, and got an academic position here, where I could kind of meld my interest in pediatrics and in allergy immunology. So I've been able to okay. kind of. Uh, do that and that, that's where it's kind of all ended up now well that's great what's your research about um it's kind of you know my research is kind of all over the place but uh one of our more recent uh, allegations that we just put out was um looking at um wildfires that we've been seeing in in southern california they've been increasing over time and we were able to use uh sort of population health level um, data 
from uh, the hospital as far as emergency department visits and urgent care visits, and then uh, overlay that during the time of the fires with uh, with uh, what we know about particulate matter during the time using air, air monitoring devices uh, throughout San Diego County. And what we were able to just to find is that even during this small scale fire that we had in 2017 called the Lilac Fire, um, even with that relatively small fire, uh, we saw an increase in emergency department visits and urgent care visits for children. Um, and that children, particularly those zero to six years of age and six to 12 years of age were, were, were um, most impacted. Um, and so I think it kind of makes sense. You know, you expect with exposure to fire that you would have more ED visits or more emergency department visits, but it really hadn't been demonstrated in that way. And certainly hadn't been demonstrated with a small fire. So it gives us an idea of what would happen with larger fires if they were to occur in the future. So what kind of response is the fire causing in people? Um, you know, are they breathing in particulates? Are they breathing in um, other like allergen inducing substances? Like what's, what's the fallout been like? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot of studies on the different things that people breathe in during a fire. And it's kind of focused in more on particulate matter nowadays and specifically particulate matter that's smaller than 2.5 microns. So really small um, particulate matter that can get inhaled really deeply into the lungs and can even get into the bloodstream. So we know that PM 2.5, as it gets called, is, can, um, can uh, cause inflammatory responses in the lungs and then can also get absorbed into the blood and has been associated with premature death, uh, but also has these sort of cardiovascular and respiratory um, outcomes. And we've seen that in adults, but we think that it may actually affect children even more. Children might actually be more vulnerable to particulate matter because they, um, they have a faster respiratory rate, so they breathe faster. Um, and also um, they, uh, absor they kind of absorb more. Is our, is our thoughts. And so, you know, I think we kind of think of the elderly as being a vulnerable population during fires. The children are also uh, particularly vulnerable given their physiology. Uh, so, so that was that was kind of what our thought pattern was for why they, why we would see increased risk during fires. Well, is there any remedy for people? You know, should they wear a mask all day long or are there any recommendations? Can they cough it out or can they do something to maybe even at least once a day clear their lungs of some of the particulate matter? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a lot of things. Um, you know, we don't necessarily have a way to, um, to kind of uh, uh, clear it once it's happening, but a lot of it may center around uh, prevention. And so, um, you know, for, for, for children that have asthma, um, certainly we, we recommend they stay indoors um, during fires or limit their outdoor activities and, and stay indoors with sort of well-ventilated, air-conditioned kind of um, uh, schools or in, indoor areas. Um, that might hold true for children that don't have asthma, you know, during particularly bad um, uh, air quality days. And so a lot of what, you know, what may need to be done is sort of centered around uh, uh, air, uh, air pollution sort of standards that already exist. Um, the EPA uh, puts out a air quality index that kind of gives you a green, yellow, and red zone. And that takes into consideration particulate matter. And so in the yellow zone, you know, children with asthma already are supposed to have their medications available, their albuterol, their controller medications, they need to have them readily available. 
Um, and as the air quality gets worse associated with uh, increased particulate matter, then, then it's, it's, a, it's a matter of moving indoors. Um, and so, yeah, that's sort of what we recommend um, short term. Um, long term, I think what, what our paper is getting at and what we're trying to um, suggest is that we're going to see uh, an increase in wildfires. There's already evidence of that. Two of, those, two of the largest fires we've had in state history have occurred in the last three years, the Thomas Fire and the Camp Fire. Although they didn't happen in San Diego, they affected, um, you know, they had affected millions of acres and, and, and there was uh, multiple deaths associated with those large fires. And so the, the clinical modeling that we've, we've done suggests that we're going to see more of these fires and that it behooves us to really be more prepared for them. Um, and so, so, you know, that might involve sort of how you plan where you build houses or um, how you mitigate the effects of fires, you know, by sort of clearing brush and things like that before the fires even occur. And so that's kind of the long-term picture we, we see is that there needs to be more planning for these fires going ahead, going forward. Well, in, in the world of, uh, of allergies, the, the medical fallout, do you have you know, do you have people now that get a chronic condition after being exposed to a fire or is it just acute? You know, they're bothered for a week or two and then they're okay. Like what, what happens? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, a little bit of both, you know, we definitely see increased, um, uh, uh, sort of breathing issues and, uh, and even nasal symptoms during, during fires. And so we know there's an acute effect but that there is also this long-term effect associated with the exposure to fires that might have long-term effects on lung function. There's been test, test uh, studies that have shown effects on, on lung function that are, that are prolonged. And so I think these are things that we don't necessarily take into consideration when we, you know, we think about fires, we think about sort of the, the, the damage that it does to homes and evacuating, you know, people and that sort of thing. But there's these long-term effects effects that that are there uh, much longer than what's seen in the period um, and they don't get taken into account when we talk, talk about the cost okay and then um so in the world of uh of allergies in general are there i don't know are there advances coming that you're either a part of or observing or looking at like what's what's new in the world of allergies in general <laughs> yeah there's a lot of exciting things coming out in this field um you know there's a real focus on um kind of more personalized care. And so I think when I grew up, we kind of grew up in the world of, um, of steroids and, and using those both, you know, for nasal allergies, using nasal steroids and for asthma, using inhaled steroids to really treat um, treat these allergic conditions because they because steroids block inflammation in general. And now what we're seeing is the development of medications, which are much more focused on blocking specific pathways in, in, in the allergic sort of cascade. Um, these medications are, are relatively expensive right now, uh, but they are very effective and their side effect profile might be, uh, might be better than, than what we've seen with steroids. And so it's, it's kind of a new world of more targeted uh, treatment in the world of, of allergies. And there's, you know, when I was training in fellowship, there was one biologic called uh, mobilizumab that was available for for asthma, and now there are at least three, um, and that you know, two of those have come out in the last couple of years, and so that it's a, it's a brand new world as far as, as treatment goes. Um, you know, the other thing is that we're uh, we've been so focused on treating allergies once they begin, um, 
but what would be really interesting and what there's a large push for now is to try to prevent the development of allergic conditions. So trying to stop allergies and asthma, you know, food allergies and all these things before they even get a chance to get going. And so a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of focus is now put on how do we actually uh, prevent, actual asthma and allergy prevention is, is sort of some of the studies that, that are occurring now. So when someone has a, uh allergies is it an overreaction of the body is it an appropriate reaction like how do you as an allergist uh, you know draw a dividing line and what what would be appropriate versus not appropriate yeah i mean it's generally an overreaction of of the body to 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 substances and things that that we we shouldn't be reacting to you know it kind of goes back to um this clean hypothesis or hygiene hypothesis that are, are in western sort of society we've um, you know, kind of become so sort of clean that we uh, aren't getting exposures to, to dirt and to um, other things that we don't really want to have a reaction to, foods, environmental allergens. And, and so our body is seeing these things that it should be able to, to tolerate as, as foreign and, and it's creating these, these, these uh, this sort of allergic reaction to it. You know, and this, this allergic response that we are, we are having um, you know, with, with hives and itchiness and that sort of thing, it used to be our response to parasite and, and we're no longer needing to fight parasites as much. And so, you know, you, you combine that with, um, with how, how much, how we've kind of industrialized as a society and how we um, are making sure things are more sterile that, um, that it kind of makes sense why we're seeing more of this, more of these allergies over time. Um, and so, so, so the idea would be that maybe we should, you know, we should be getting exposed to these things earlier, you know, and certainly with food allergies, it's been shown that, you know, early introduction of some of these things leads to um, a reduction in, in food allergies, uh, specifically with peanut, we've seen that with them. And so I, I think that may be where things are headed is trying to prevent allergic conditions before they actually occur, you know, specifically in, in high-risk kids, maybe if, they, if their parents have allergies, they have siblings with allergies, how we actually prevent younger siblings from, from getting and, and uh, young children. Well, why do you think kids are, you know, or the elderly are more susceptible? What do you think is maybe part of the underlying mechanism we're not seeing that, that uh, you know, that, that modulates susceptibility? Well, we think there's a, a really early window um, where this development's happening, and it's it's looking like it's very early in uh, in infancy, somewhere between you know birth and 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 maybe 11 months of age before the first year uh, first year of life, where you know when 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 you're first born, you don't have much of an immune system. You you don't want much of an immune system. When when uh, when you're in the womb, because your 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 immune system depends on your 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 mother's system, um, and so when you when you when you come out, and, and so when you're in the womb, you don't really want to attack anything because you're relying on on your on your mother, um, and so when you come out, you're kind of fresh, um, and you're building your immune system, um, and so that's why. That's why we we think that this window is is occurring after after birth that you start to develop your immune system. That's when you want sort of early exposures. We think developmentally that's why kids sample everything around them. They touch the ground. They put their hands to their mouths. They suck on their thumbs. Like that, we think that's all sort of giving young young children exposure to different um, potential allergens. But that 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 is what induces tolerance. That our immune system sees these things enough and doesn't respond to them. By the time you're 
three, four, five, six years old, it's it's already too late. Your immune system's already kind of set in place is, is our thought pattern for, for a lot. Hmm, okay. Any advances you see coming? Any novel ideas on how allergy works and how immunity works that you think will be helpful? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there, I kind of mentioned a little bit about biologic medications that sort of target specific pathways. So we think um, IL-4, IL-13, um, IL-5, IL, uh, and then IgE are, are important players in, in allergic conditions. And so um, there are, uh, there, there's a uh, NIH level study, um, one that we're involved with called the PARC study, which actually involves giving anti-IgE, so blocking one of the mediators of allergy. Uh, we, we, we're, uh, the study involves giving that medication at two to four years of age. So it might, might be a little bit later in the allergic sort of uh, cascade, sort of the allergic march, as we talk, as we call it. Um, but if, if giving it this medication early, which we already use this medication for a really bad asthma, um, but if we give it early, does it actually stop this march towards these conditions and actually prevent the development of asthma? So, so that's that's Ooh. certainly a study that's already underway. It's a multi-center study that's out of uh, Boston Children's and involves multiple sites across the country. Um, and there are, uh, I think, there are other studies that are looking at intervening earlier um, on to see if they can prevent, you know, we didn't really get into it too much, but the microbiome is also part of sort of this whole idea that, you know, you have to have a good gut bacteria and that things like having C-sections or antibiotic courses when you are, uh, when, you, when, when, you're, when you're born uh, might adversely affect the development of some of these allergic conditions, again, getting back to the hypothesis. And so if you modulate, you know, the microbiome, does that actually prevent the development of asthma and allergies. And that's a lot earlier sort of in the kind of uh, research realm, but something that's also being looked at, modify the gut microbiome, does that, would that help, you know, either put, sway the immune system towards um, on a less allergic pathway or, or, or towards an allergic pathway, that's something. Well, in that regard, have the microbiomes of, uh, you know, the nasal or, or lung microbiome or even gut microbiome in sequence of people that have allergies to see if there's differences. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and looking at the microbiome of, of where they are, like we think the environment that they live in is just important. So, you know, in the home, there's people looking at studies of the microbiome inside hospitals or in workplaces, all these things where, you know, we are sort of walking around in different microbiome environments and whether those development is an area. Any particulars that you've seen in a paper that were interesting or is it too early and there's really no knowledge yet on uh, how microbiome interplays with allergies it's it's pretty early like for you know if you do two different microbiome studies you'll find these you'll find two different results as far as what bacteria is important i think if it was more straightforward you know this is the specific bacteria that is important then we would have already found it and targeted it uh, but my feeling is that there's probably it's more of a sort of microbial communities and having certain um you know, a certain collection of them. There's a, a large study called the Child Study that that it was in Canada, and they found sort of four different species of bacteria that seem to be important. Um, and so, pe- you know, people are investigating what it is. You know, because it's not the presence of the bacteria that's important necessarily. It's what they produce. It's their byproducts, uh, which if 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 what they're creating is inflammatory or anti-inflammatory. And so those that's where things are being kind of looked at right now. But 
there hasn't been a study, there hasn't been like consistent studies that have shown the same bacteria being necessarily important. So, you know, that, that definitely still needs to be. Okay. Um, any other areas of, uh, of interest you're starting to see papers on that, you know, very interesting, you think it'll be super influential in treatment? Um, you know, it, it, I think that those are the, I think those kind of prevention, preventative things are, are super interesting, the microbiome and then maybe giving sort of and trying and trying to give maybe biologics earlier on to prevent some of these conditions. A whole other world that I think is important, and, but it's hard to study is the idea around sort of technology um, and this whole thing, whole idea, you know, with the sort of um, mobile sort of technology and telemedicine. I think is new ways of kind of reaching patients and and changing um, sort of outcomes is really interesting um, and certainly is a whole new realm that we're starting to just now begin to understand. So I think that's going to be super interesting. I mean, we've had the medications that can treat allergies and asthma for 30 years. Um, those have been available for a long time. And it's not a matter of whether they're effective or not. It's whether people take them or if there's sort of barriers to whether they'll, they'll take them. And so on that side, as far as treatment goes, it's, it's, it's a matter of sort of improving adherence to these medications and, um, and finding the right medications for patients. And so if you can interact more personally with, with patients, so with mobile technology through apps or through telemedicine where you're, they don't have to necessarily come to the office, but you can actually communicate with your patients through like a, a you know, mobile device. I think those are, those are definitely things we're going to see more in the future. So we, um, you know, we, we, we've set up telemedicine in our clinic and been able to reach out to patients that are in an underserved clinic um, in sort of an area of town in San Diego that has the highest asthma rates. And they've shown appreciation that, you know, they don't have to drive to our clinic, they don't have to pay parking, they don't have to, you know, necessarily the, you know, those barriers to actually coming and seeing your, your asthma doctor, your allergy doctor, you can kind of break some of those down uh, through mobile technology. And so I think that is another realm of, of that we have another sphere that's going to be very important in asthma. Yeah, I spoke to, um, well, today earlier, uh, an allergist that talked about fungi and the role of fungal infections and how that may be a cause of uh, some allergies. Have you seen any papers on that or is that uh, still very speculative? Yeah, actually, I uh, I've seen a few papers on sort of of fungus, and I mean, we know that Altenaria is a is a large trigger for for asthma attacks. There's studies on that from the Midwest. Um, but I've also uh, one of my collaborators just uh, he was showing me a paper that he worked on that showed fungal that showed uh, similar to the I mean, he's a microbiome sort of expert, but he kind of was showing me a paper which showed there's some fungal species that are important in asthma. So it's, that is definitely an interesting uh, concept that we haven't heard very much about, but certainly on radar. For okay. Well, very good. Well, what's the best way for people to, to reach out, you know, to talk to you and, you know, read some stuff that you're working on, ask questions, et cetera? Um, yeah, I actually, so, um, I have a Twitter account. It's SA Libel, at SA Libel. Uh, we actually, my wife and I actually do a podcast called Deeds on a Pod. Um, we haven't done one in a year because we have three children now, but we've, right. we've put out some podcasts on, um, on climate change, on, uh, on different, different things um, related to some of the research on microbiome um, that, that people can check out as well. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, Cindy, I appreciate you coming and thank you for all your knowledge and time. Anytime. Thanks for uh, reaching out and uh, I'm happy to do it anytime. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 